Why do you experience pain? You are a Christian, aren't you? And God does love you, and He is all-powerful. So why doesn't this all-powerful, all-loving God alleviate the pain and suffering in your life? From time to time, various ones of us experience not only pain, but excruciating pain. Sometimes, maybe some of you have been rushed off to the hospital to have an emergency taken care of. Others have an ailment that they are never healed of. I rather suspect that your bulletin is like ours, that week after week there's always somebody that's either lingering on for the prayer list or somebody needs to be added. And that somebody may have been you in the past or present. Why does God allow his children to suffer? The book of Job, written by God, answers that question. The specific problem presented in the book of Job is just that. Here is a righteous man, as we'll see as we advance in this study. A righteous man who is suffering, but not only suffering, he's suffering extensively in all various aspects of the human life. But he's suffering under the eyes of all-powerful an all-loving God. And so we're left with the question, why do we suffer? We have this handout that's simply uh, to help us in our lesson that you can see this all in one picture and uh, hopefully keep and to uh, refer back to it every once in a while because even if you're not suffering now, even if you're not having any kind of ailment, chances are sometime in the future you will. And you might be asking, now what did that preacher say? What does the book of Job teach? I need that. So tuck this away, if you would. Here are the questions that arise from the book of Job. Some of the questions. Is God unjust in allowing a righteous person to suffer? Two, Does God pay back men, that is while we're still here on earth, not in hell, does God pay back men while on earth for their sins with a non-sin related punishment? Now what does that mean? Well, you know, there are sins that we get involved, that people get involved in, and, and because of that sin, we might receive some kind of problem. Go off and rob a bank and you might just simply get shot or arrested and thrown in prison. So there is a punishment, but it's related to the sin. But a non-sin-related punishment would be such as if a person uh, lied and God struck him with the flu. See, there's no relationship. But God just simply doing that to a person because they've sinned. Or a person steals, and so God has them, their body eaten up with cancer. That's the question we're looking at. Then thirdly, may suffering have spiritual benefits? We're going to answer those questions as we go through this, but here's our procedure. First of all, we're going to get the story, which I'm sure most all of us are quite familiar with. In chapters 1, chapters 2, it has to do about Job's situation. We want to iron out, make sure that, yes, Job's righteous, and yes, indeed, he's suffering. So why is Job suffering? Secondly, we'll look at Job's view. 
why, what Job seemed to be thinking about why he's suffering because he maintains his righteousness. Next, we'll look at the three friends, his older friends that come along, and, and they offer up his, their uh, view on the situation. And then there's a fourth one, a younger one that waits to the end to speak. And we're going to look at his view. Then after we look at all this, then God is going to make his reply in the last handful of chapters. And then he's going to explain who is right and what is right. And then we'll get our answer. Why do you suffer? First of all, the situation. I'm going to be looking at several passages in the book of Job. You're welcome to follow along with me. I will be doing a lot of reading, so if you're not following, that you will still yet hear what we're saying. Now, Job's character. We've got to nail this down because, well, you know, what if Job was an unrighteous person? What if Job was a sinful person? Well, then the situation doesn't fit our situation, does it? We don't have an answer. In chapter 1, verse 1, here the inspired writer says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Now, if you were to look at verse 8, we see God saying virtually the same thing. So here the Holy Spirit inspiring the one who wrote this, and God himself is saying this, no question about that Job indeed is an upright, a righteous man. But also look at verse 5. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, speaking about his children. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did regularly. So not only was he concerned about himself, but he was such a righteous man, he was concerned about his children, he had offered up sacrifices, if perchance that would appease God for what his sons had done. But then also in verse 3, notice something about his possessions. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 male donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. Yes, he was quite wealthy. He was quite well known. No doubt from the other characteristics we see of him, he was quite a generous man. People liked Job. So Job was a righteous man, and he had a lot of wealth. And this is one of the things that Satan brought up against Job. Now, what about Satan's challenge? Look at verses 9 through 11. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now... Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you, you to your face. So what Satan is saying here is, now look, here's Job, but Lord, you have put a hedge around him. You do not let the enemies come in, you do not let diseases come in, you do not let uh, famine come in, financial problems. You have protected him, well of course he's going to serve you. He has no tests. And that was Satan's challenge, and God accepted that challenge. 
And we see in chapter 1, verses 13, 19, that the Sabaeans came in and they stole his oxen and his donkeys and then killed all the servants. You also read that, that a fire came down from heaven. Evidently, I'm inclined to think, although it's, it's not scripture, I'm inclined to think that he didn't send fire down like Sodom and Gomorrah as God did. But I'm inclined to think that he had lightning bolts strike all around and start the fire up and then it consumed. But whatever, whichever way it is, it doesn't matter that all his sheep were consumed and the servants too. Then the Chaldeans came in and they stole all the camels and also killed all the servants. And then with a matter of moments, then another servant came to report to Job about his children being in the house and a great wind came and collapsed and killed them all. In a matter of moments, Job went from riches to poverty. His wealth was gone. His retirement was gone. His family was gone. His kids. And there would have been his descendants, of which the people would take great pride in his family and passing on the heritage. But that was wiped out. But yet, we see in verse 22, it says, In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Yes, indeed, Job kept his integrity. He didn't question God. Not yet. Now, Satan then had a further challenge to God. And in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2, we see that Satan had the audacity, and here's another side note for us to recognize, that if Satan is even going to approach the throne of God, then he's going to be approaching elders and preachers and sound faithful Christians. Brother, he's not going to flee from yet at all. He approached God, and God said, Where have you been? He said, I've been down there upon earth, going to and fro, back and forth. Does he not then walk about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. That's exactly what he was doing. And so God calls attention to to Job. Well, what about it, Satan? He hasn't cursed me. He hasn't denounced me. He hasn't sinned. And Satan, no doubt, was quite frustrated. And he said, yea, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give in exchange for his health, in exchange for his pain, in exchange for his suffering. And you know that's true. How much money are we willing to spend when we're in excruciating pain? Oh, we don't care about the finances. You know, get this pain out of my body. Satan knew about that. And so God allowed Satan to go off and to test him once again. And Satan then, in verse 7 of chapter 2, It says, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. I don't know if you've ever had boils. But when I was about 10 years of age, I had one right here, and I still have a scar from it. It got up to about the size of a quarter, and it fester up. And, you know, when I'd be at school and put my hand down to write, boy, you had to lift your hand because it just hurt so much, and that was just one. And it was ugly. It was embarrassing to see my other students look at it. 
But notice, it says from the top of his head to the top of it, no, to the bottom of his feet. If you've never had a boil, uh, consider maybe a, a cut on your thumb or something that, that whenever you grabbed something or stepped on something or you touched whatever, wherever that cut was, how much that hurt. How would you like to have those kind of cuts all over your body, including on your feet, so you couldn't stand without having great pain? You couldn't sit. You couldn't lay down. You couldn't lay on your stomach. You couldn't even stand on your head if you could. And that wasn't just for a couple of minutes. We don't know how long it went on. It went on for quite some time. But still, Job did not curse God. So the problem is evident, is it not? That here is Job, God himself said, here is the best there is. Here is a righteous man, and he's suffering, and he is suffering intensely. His health, his wealth, his children, the heartache of losing the children, and then his wife, as it were, turned against him. As we'll see, his friends didn't understand either. You know, God, I think has Job in the ultimate situation of suffering so that there's not a single one of us can say, yeah, but I suffered more than Job. Is it not the case that God is showing us a human being just like us who's able to endure, which means that we can too. Now Job's contention There is a situation. Job was puzzled, but he denies his friend's explanation. Let me just, I know that I'm righteous. I don't know why I'm suffering, but I know that I haven't sinned. As a matter of fact, in chapter 27, verse 6, it says, My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. Now, to add to this misery, as you see on your paper, in adding to his misery, in, in chapter 23, verses 1 through 4, Job comes up with the question where is God so we can have this matter out? More specifically, the verse reads Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat, to his judgment seat. See, Job had had it up to here. He wasn't cursing God as much as his wife was trying to talk him into do so. But, but he didn't know. He wanted answers. He has all these problems. And now he's thinking, God has want, gone off and hid himself from me. And now he's not going to be God enough to come explain. If I could only, Job said, approach his judgment seat. So all this is... Uh, pretty baffling, and doesn't it baffle us sometimes, that we might think, you know, why am I suffering? Why me? I don't understand. So we ask the same question that Job does in this book. Now let's look at the three friends. The three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Now around Job gathers these three friends. They come to sympathize. They come to offer help. But they only make the problem even worse. They have three speeches. Well, Zophar has simply two. But 
Bildad will speak, and then Job will respond. Zophar will speak, Job will respond. So in all this, there's actually a debate that's going on from about chapters uh, 4 on to about chapter 38, the bulk of the book. Now here's their belief, as you see on the sheet, just below those three big arrows. It's the concept of immediate retribution, which I mentioned moments ago. And it's this, if we say, no, we say, if one sins, then God will immediately punish him with a non-sin-related punishment. Remember when Jesus and his disciples was going into a town, and they called Jesus' attention over this man who was born blind? And his disciples said to him, Jesus, this man that's born blind, who sinned, he or his parents? The book of Job was written a long time ago, or at least it was written, many think, by Moses, but by inspiration at a date much earlier than Moses. So maybe 2,000 years later, and people still have that question. People today still think like these three friends. If you're suffering, it's because you sinned, and you need to straighten up. You need to get yourself right with God. And they lay the blame at people. They make people feel bad. Perhaps maybe they have said those kind of things to you. The audacity of someone, I recall, I do not remember who and uh, all, the, all that was going on, but it was a serious uh, problem. And one of the, I think it might have been the spouse, going up in the elevator and the spouse explained to somebody else. And somebody was religious and they said, you know, it's, it's because of the sin, because of the sin. What a thing to say. Well, let's look at this. Eliphaz, he believes in this immediate retribution. You know, you sin, then God's going to strike you with, with um, the flu. He said, it's because I have observed this is the way it is. Notice with me, if you would, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Eliphaz saying, remember now, Job, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By my observation, I've come to a doctrinal conclusion, is what he's saying. There was a time I could almost remember hearing the the man's words. He was trying to affirm that faith and repentance occur at the same time. And if you talk with people who believe in faith only long enough, they're going to have to do that. Because if you say a person is saved by faith only and yet he has to repent, then you've got a person being saved without repentance. Well, that's absurd. So they started putting repentance in front of faith. Well, Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, if you, you know, if you don't repent, you're going to perish. So if you repent, you're not going to perish. So you have a person being saved before he even believes. So what they're having to say is, when you believe, you repent at the same time, and it's a false doctrine. But nevertheless, the point I want to make is, the man who I was talking to said, it has been my observance that when people believe, they instantaneous repent. 
My observation, where's the scriptures that teach that? We're not going by a person's observations. But also, secondly, we see that Eliphaz said, I have had visions. I have had night visions. I've had voices in my ears that God has put there telling me this, that is so. Look at chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it, and disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night. And then verse 16, the last part, Then I heard a voice saying. So not only the observations, but also these visions and these words put into his ear or mind. Do we not have the same today? Remember years back when Oral Roberts said, I had a dream, I had a vision about the praying hands. Have you been to the Oral Roberts University and seen those hands there that he duped so many people with millions of dollars to erect? Yeah, people today, not even on television, but our friends. You know, I, I, I had this thought, and you know, God must have put that thought in my head. I had this vision. I had this dream. People are still doing the same thing. Bildad. Bildad, we see in your middle arrow there, he maintains the same idea of moral retribution, immediate retribution, but he alludes to tradition. Look at chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. For inquire, please, of the former age what has been going on since many, many years ago, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow. Will they, the fathers, not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? Tradition. Things that have been handed down. Why, we've been believing this for so long. It's got to be right. Catholicism has their oral tradition and that they will hold, they hold the Bible, they hold their oral tradition and they have in their book saying, of the two, this is more secure, the oral tradition. What the rabbis, well not the rabbis, that's what the Jews did, they had their traditions, but uh, what, the, what the older ones, the uh, church fathers, even the first, second, third centuries were teaching, even though it's contradictory to the scriptures. But, you know, we have got to watch out ourselves, brethren, because, you know, we don't have any kind of oral traditions like that, but we might keep an eye open that, am I, are we just doing this because we've been doing it for so long, the churches of Christ? We've always got to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Zophar. Zophar on your handout, we see that he's simply dogmatic. He just insists that he's right. He doesn't appeal to visions. He doesn't appeal. They didn't have it then. They didn't, he didn't appeal to scriptures. doesn't appeal to anything other than, I know what I believe, and I am right. As a matter of fact, let's look at chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. He said, I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me. And the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer, Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on the earth? 
In chapter 11, verses 15 through 20, there are 15 shouts. As Zophar says, this shout, this is it. This is, this is what is right. In chapter 20, verses 20 through 29, there's another 13. So what we see here is a man who is just simply dogmatic. He's arrogant about it. He's entrenched in it. And he brooks no opposition. When I was in high school at Putnam West, one of my best friends still is, we were talking about uh, miraculous gifts. And I was saying, you know, Bob, we don't have miraculous gifts today. And I said, I have to explain it to him. And he would bring up something, this, that, and the other, and I'd bring the other things back up. He said, look, I'm right and you're wrong. That's being dogmatic. And it might be the case that maybe you studied with someone too on whatever topic it might be. And you're right. But they say or think, I'm right and he's wrong. It's out there yet even today. Is that the way to determine what is right? But then also notice on your sheet, it's included. If the sinner repents, Job, you have sinned and you're suffering, but if you repent, God will immediately restore you. I'm going to look at chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. As one of them says this, he says, If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, Job, you're suffering, but if you would seek God and pray to God, if you were pure and upright, surely now He would await for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. So yes, if you're a righteous man, you're not going to suffer. But Job, you sinned, you have fallen. But now what you've got to do, if you want to get restored to your health, just, just confess up. Just confess up. For, ask God for forgiveness, and then He will restore you. You know, that's not anything new to today, too. Because the same people that are saying the things that these three friends are about the immediate retribution, they will also say, look, when you straighten up, you're, you know, this, this ailment you have, it's going to go away. You don't have to go see the doctors. Just, just repent. Just repent and ask God for forgiveness. There's the three friends. Now, Elihu, the fourth friend, chapter 32 through 37. This one waited. He was younger. In his dialogue, he mentioned that he was younger and he waited. And that was, that was good. That was upstanding of this fellow. But his contention was, as you see on your sheet, if the, I say that there are benefits to suffering. Let me read one of the passages I have marked. In chapter 33, verse 14. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In verse 17 and 19. In order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from a man, he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. So here's an excerpt of what he is saying in these five, six chapters. Job, there is benefits to suffering. That by your suffering, it can keep you or anybody else from the pit, from eternal hell. 
because God will chasten you. It will help you to recognize the error of your way. It will cause you to make repentance. And then you'll be uh, saved once again. And you won't have to go to that eternal hell. So that was his contention. And now God is going to reply. Elihu, as he uh, finished his talk, had constantly been referring to an upcoming storm. He'd see the clouds just like you and I. The rain would come as, I don't know, did Choctaw get rain today? Good. The rain would come. Some storms we have thunder, we have lightning, and then we have a, maybe a whirlwind like in May. And I still remember that one. When was it? 98, 99, the one that came up here and got sonic and so forth, that, that monster of a tornado. We know what a tornado is. And then out of that tornado, God speaks. Could you imagine hearing a voice above a tornado's wind? Must have been pretty loud. But something unexpected occurs. Instead of Job asking God all these questions, when Job was wondering, where has God gone? I want to come to his judgment seat. I want to have this matter out. I've got questions to ask. Instead of Job asking God's questions, God asked Job the questions. Beginning in about chapters 38, including chapter 39. And these are questions that many of them still baffle scientists today. But think of a fellow, 2000 B.C., let's just give it to that, trying to answer these questions. Everything was simply totally over his head. Look at chapter 38, 1 through 4 for a sampling. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, remember, when God is saying this to Job, He's also saying this to us if we're questioning God about our suffering. Who darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And he begins. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Where were we? Where were you before God created the heavens and the earth? Job didn't know. He had no way of knowing. Scientists today have no way of knowing. We don't have an answer. I have a pretty good idea, and I'm sure you do too. We were created when God created our, our soul and our bodies. But as it continues on, well, let's look at verse 17 and verse 19. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have have we seen anybody pass through the gates of death? Have, Have we seen their soul leave? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of the death of death? Question after question after question. If you were to take the time tonight when we get home, To read these chapters, 38 and 39, you'll see that this covers the whole realm of nature in principle. 
It talks about the earth, about the foundation of the earth. It talks about the seas. It has questions about the seas. It has questions about about the uh, stars. Question that we can't even answer today. Talked about the birds. Talked about the horses. Talked about things about the mountain goats. Things that you know about their nature. Why did they do this? Why did they act like this? Question after question after question. God, who has perfect knowledge, is asking the one who, what does it say? That has no knowledge. Oh, Job had some knowledge, but not the kind that God's talking about. In Job, in chapter 40, verse 4, he partially gets the answer. And maybe we do too. Job says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. You see, Job understood some things, and that is that that God is all-powerful, and He's all-wise, and He knows all things. But Job was still saying, but that still doesn't answer my question. Job still didn't get it. God gave an answer, but Job just didn't get it. God's all-powerful. He's all-wise. He, he, he knows everything. He continues on. Then we have the well-known account where God says, what about the Leviathan, the one that dwells in the water? And it describes a creature that we do not have today. Can you handle it, Job? Sometimes people have thought that it was an alligator, but it doesn't describe the alligator. No man can handle the Leviathan. Then the behemoth describes what I'm thoroughly convinced, one of the dinosaurs. Sometimes people have said, you know, let's talk about the hippopotamus. But have you ever seen a hippopotamus with a tail about the size of a cedar? <laughs> it wasn't a hippopotamus. It wasn't an elephant. But it was evidently one of those great ferocious dinosaurs. Well, ferocious, but they were very big and very powerful. Job, you going to go up there and handle that thing? Job wouldn't answer. He had nothing to say. He knew he couldn't answer. He couldn't answer the questions before. You know, we couldn't answer the question. You know, some of these questions, you know, we know about. But the other questions, we don't. Suppose that you were to take a test. And you were to take a test. Um, I don't know if there's any nurses and doctors in here, but suppose that you were to go in there and take a detailed test on, on um, listing the, uh, the diagram on the uh, parts of the body. I mean, the, the intricate things and so forth. Uh, you know, what do you call them by the, by the medical term? Uh, we don't know. We'd just have a blank, wouldn't we? And that's the, way, that's the way Job felt. He was just at a blank. He didn't have enough knowledge. So God challenges him to take God's position in being ruler of the universe. Because in essence, that's really what Job was questioning. God, are you handling things right? You're the creator, but here I am, a righteous man, 
and I'm suffering. And Job did not see that that was part of God's total plan. Job did not have the ability to stand back far enough to look at the whole situation, to look at God, look at the world, look at where everything's going on, and make a judgment call. Job was not superior to God to where Job could stand back and make a judgment on God as to how he's handling things. Job just simply did not understand. He now understands in this, that Job understands that just as he, here's our lesson, just as we are not able to handle the universe, this world, the creatures, neither are we able to handle the complexities of human suffering. But we have got to, brethren, we have got to, as Job understood, trust God. Trust God in that He knows what He's doing. That he is just. No, we don't understand everything. But we need to recognize that God is God. He understands everything. He has the weights and the balances. He handles everything justly. He knows about the aches and pains of every single one of you. But he knows as Job did, if we have trust in God, then we will be able to endure. You know, it's kind of like a child riding in a car with the father. The child's in the back seat wearing the seatbelt with a little slack in it. The child's back there in the back seat with a coloring book and coloring the, the pages. And the child trusts in their father in driving. But you know they go along and all of a sudden, wham! The father slams on the brake and the child goes for the the seatbelt locks, the coloring book goes on the floor and as does all the crayons. And the child doesn't say, Dad, just what in the world are you doing? Are you nuts? But the child, the child, hopefully, thinks, Dad knows how to drive. My dad can do anything and do it better than anybody else. And I don't know why he had to slam on the brakes. But I can trust my dad that he needed to. And he knew what he was doing. Brethren, that's the way we need to be with God. We hear those telephone calls from our doctors. You better come to the office. I got something to tell you. We see the reports. Not good. We have the pain. Boy, it hurts. Let's not question God. I have known people who have had some kind of a problem in their life a loss of a child, and they blame God. I'm a member of the church. They blame God, and they quit God. 
how serious this is. May it never be said of any of us. The book of Job teaches us as Christians that we need to trust God in that He knows what He's doing. And sometimes that's really hard. But we are Christians. Time is up. Let me... Let me just mention, I didn't have this plan, but let me just mention some of the things about suffering. Why do we suffer? You know why we suffer? Simply this. is because sin has entered in this world. That's it. Remember the Garden of Eden? God made that place perfect. The seventh day, it, God saw it was all very good. It was a wonderful place. What happened? Man sinned, they're kicked out. And then they had the thorns and all those kind of things. Things were difficult, but things still weren't as bad as we have today. Because of sin, God had Noah build an ark. You know, in 2 Peter, it talks about that God destroyed all those people along with the earth. This earth today is not like the earth it used to be before the flood. We lost that protective canopy that kept air pressure down. We were able to breathe better. We had a lot of oxygen in our body that that fought off all kinds of diseases. Uh, It had a greenhouse effect, and on and on and on and on and on. They didn't have deserts back then. They They didn't have tornadoes. They didn't have those. All those things came about because of man's sin, and God destroyed man as well as the earth, that environment. Why do we suffer? Why do we have ailments? Why do we have the diseases? Because of man's sin. You go home when your house is robbed. Why? Well, because of God, because of man's sin. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. We do things that we ought not. We rob that bank and we get thrown in jail. We abuse our bodies with substance and then our bodies react and they have ailments that perhaps will never go away, might even take our lives. Yeah, we suffer, but not because of God. It's so important for us to realize that God wanted us to have the Garden of Eden, or at least the pre-flood condition, because God loves us, and He didn't want us to hurt. But look what we've done to ourselves. God's not unjust. God's trying to help us. We've made our, humanity made ourselves in this fix. But God is trying to help. What did Jesus do when he came here upon earth? Healed people until he was exhausted. He wanted people healed. He's given us the ability to discover and understand medicines and procedures and surgeries. He could have kept that from us. He didn't have to give us plants and those kinds of things that would give us the medicines. God wants us to have a good life. But of course, first of all, He wants us to have a good spiritual life. Brethren, let's never turn away from our loving God. Because we need to remember, God is just. And He does know what's going on. May these things help us in our struggles in our own lives. Thank you for allowing me to be here.